Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I am Lowell Thompson and my lifelong love of learning saved my life. A few years ago, I was in and out of the ER and ICU with no end in sight due to, at the time, a mysterious illness. I read medical journals, talked to scientists and researchers, and learned how to develop a good treatment plan, all of which put me on the path to becoming healthy, which I am now. I have met the team responsible for creating the drug that saved my life, and now I am taking my experiences and love of learning and translating them into interviews with experts, CEOs, and scientists in order to achieve three goals in hopefully every episode, to have fun and interesting conversations that are enjoyable to listen to, to learn what these people are developing and creating, to hear what their tactics, strategies, tools, books, and resources they use to accomplish what they were doing so that you can help navigate your career to help build the startup that you want to build. The best way to help out is to subscribe. Check out the learningwithlowell.com website where you'll have show notes, hyperlinked notes so you can click around in the audio. Every term that we talk about in the episodes go into those notes and they're clickable. There'll be links to everything in the show notes at learnwithlowell.com. The best thing you can do is to sign up to the weekly content letter that I put out. It comes out every week. It is fantastic. It comes from the interviews with guests. It comes from me just reading a lot on the on the internet. You'll have book recommendations, video, articles, things to help you progress in your careers, things to help you develop your startup, things to that are just fun and entertaining to listen and watch. You'll have all that every week. So definitely sign that up, check it out, and tell all your friends about it. That's the best thing you can do to help. Today we are joined with Dr. Matthew O'Connor, Vice President of Research at SENS Research Foundation. He's passionate about bringing regenerative medicine to diseases and disabilities of aging. So this is going to be an episode on aging. It's going to be a short episode, about 30 minutes. He has been with SENS for 10 years. He's very much into this field. SENS is a nonprofit focused on transforming the way research is being done on age-related diseases. In this episode, we get into mitochondria, its relationship with aging, the MitoSense project, mitochondrial DNA, genetic engineering, how to improve targeting, the SENS internship program over the summer, the damage of free radicals and its danger in age-related problems, the OLA topic controversy as well. Then we finish off with the, the benefits of supercharging mitochondria, basically the next generation of doping, CRISPR, bodybuilding, and Lay's disease. So if any of that interests you, this will be the episode for you. So check it out. Let me know what you think. And remember to leave a review. I, I have a background in neuroscience. And so when we, were, when we study the brain, we look at kind of like phidias gauge, like people have had like brain damage to some extent to see how certain areas work. And so I'm curious, as you guys have researched different diseases, have you used those as case studies to better understand how the mitochondrial works and how you can use dysfunction as like a lens to understand it better, if that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, in, in some ways, you could, you could claim that, that we don't work directly on aging because most of the work that we're using to as a model to correct the mutations that we want to correct in aging, we do in mitochondrial disease. And I think that if and when our research is ready for the clinic, it will almost certainly be applied to patients who are born with congenital mitochondrial disease mutations in their mitochondrial DNA. So we actually have a reasonably large collection of 
cell lines that came from patients, from human patients who have mutations in their mitochondrial DNA in specific mitochondrial genes that we can study, understand well, and then figure out how to correct those mutations. So absolutely, disease states is, is our model for how to repair uh, mitochondrial damage. That's kind of probably one of the reasons why you guys have built SENS and then did the MitoSense project. And so I'm curious, after you guys, I think it was like 156% of what you wanted to raise, you raised. So how, how have things gone since then with, on that project? Gone really well. We So that was, I, I can't remember what, when we finished that crowdfunding campaign, but it was it was during the, the funding period from that that we made one of our key discoveries that we published in, in 2016, showing that we were able to rescue a mutation in two mitochondrial genes, ATP8 and ATP6, to get slightly technical. So we've been able to take a cell line from a, a patient who has a very severe disease in a, uh, in a in a single well in, in two mitochondrial genes it's it's a little bit of a, a complicated mutation it, it ends up affecting two genes and we were able to to repair the the damage caused by by that mutation in those cells we're going on uh, now to try to do something similar to that in a mouse that has a mutation in, in the same gene. And we're also working in human cell lines for several other, the 13 mitochondrial encoded proteins. And we have some success that I hope we'll be able to report on soon. Oh, excellent. Then what are some of the challenges? So we're doing some pretty intense genetic engineering here. The, the reason is that the what we're trying to do is is a little different from what I would call like sort of straightforward gene therapy. Gene therapy in a petri dish on cells for a normal nuclear encoded gene is relatively straightforward. Now in the clinic it's much more complicated and so that's why we're only just now barely starting to see gene therapy come to a lot of clinical trials and and start to be approved for wider human use. But in, in the Petri dish, if you have a single gene mutation in a nuclear gene, you know, 99% of the time, you can, you can just make a copy of that gene and insert it anywhere in the nuclear genome under kind of minimal control, and it, it'll work and it'll correct the mutation. Mitochondrially encoded genes are much more complicated because they live inside of the mitochondria. Most people think, well, I get, you know, half of my DNA from my mother and half from my from my father, and so half my chromosomes come from one and the other and I have two copies of every gene, etc. But with mitochondrial DNA, you only get it from your mother, and the DNA is is kind of weird. It it's under different control from the from the nuclear genome. It's totally independent. Some people compare it to like a different species living inside of our cells. And evolutionarily, that's that's probably true that that the mitochondria was a, a primitive bacteria that got eaten by a uh, another primitive larger bacteria and they became symbiotic. So they they speak a different language, for example. So the mitochondrial DNA is encoded slightly differently from the rest of the the DNA in in nuclear genomes in in all organisms. 
So that's one problem that we have to solve is the, the language difference. But that's actually the easiest problem. So we can solve the coding problem pretty easily. Then there's all of the regulatory and targeting issues. And that's what we actually spend most of our time doing a lot of trial and error engineering on and computational approaches and such like that. So we, we engineer the space before the gene starts. We engineer the, the targeting sequence, the mitochondrial targeting sequence, which is a protein sequence that uh, nuclear encoded mitochondrial genes need to have to get targeted to the mitochondria that genes that already live inside the mitochondria don't need. So we need to put a totally new version of one of those on there. Then there's the sequence itself that I already talked about. And then there's the downstream sequence that's not part of the protein, but is important for the genetic regulation of the gene. So I, th- that was maybe a, a mouthful for your listeners, but we, we we do know what a lot of the challenges are. And we, we kind of break them down into those different pieces that I just laid out and uh, and test them individually and then in combinations. Uh, and so we have a lot of assays to uh, to test the success or failure of, of all the different modifications that we make to the genes. I, I read a lot or, or hear a lot about optimizing the targeting and like sometimes like with CRISPR technology that like the targeting can be odd. And so I'm curious, like how do you refine that as a scientist? Because in my mind, I have no idea how that works. So I'm curious, like how do you actually refine like the targeting system because like right now i'm picturing just like the scene from star wars where the guy tries like firing the thing at the death star and i'm I, like almost 100 percent sure that is not how that works so i'm curious like how does it actually work to refine the targeting right so you're you're right it doesn't work anything like a, a miniature version of uh of, of shooting a uh a, a, a torpedo down a, a, an exhaust shaft. It, 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 you know, and in fact, in in molecular biology, you can see almost nothing, and so you're you're working indirectly uh, through different kinds of assays that you can use to to measure the outcomes of what you're doing. So let me give you some examples. We have a lot uh, of assays that we've developed to test what is happening to our genes. And so this is kind of the, the, the throughput that we'll do. The first question when we come up with a new version of a gene is, uh, is it being made? And so a gene being made has uh, two steps. First, it starts out as DNA, uh, of course, and then from there, it needs to be transcribed into RNA, and that's like the message. And then the RNA needs to be turned into proteins. And so proteins are the business end of genes. They're the effect, they're the building blocks of, uh, of life. And so what we will study is that we'll look to see, is the RNA being made and is the protein being made? Okay, so if they pass those tests, then we can look at targeting. So then we'll do a, uh, a procedure, uh, and I should say that, how do we know that if they're being made? No, we don't have like microscopes that can see individual proteins. Proteins are too small to be seen uh, under, a, uh, under a microscope. We can detect them with antibodies. So if you've ever gotten a, uh, a lab test done for you know any kind of... Uh, disease, uh, there's a good chance that they use an antibody test to see whether you had the, the antigen for the, for the virus or for the bacteria that the doctor may have thought that you're infected with. 
So we do tests like that in the lab to see whether our proteins are being made. Next, we look for targeting. So then we're going to break it down one level more specifically and break apart the cells and purify the mitochondria. And so once we've purified the mitochondria, we'll do the same thing and we'll look to see if the protein is going to the mitochondria. Then we're going to take a step further than that and we're going to subfractionate the mitochondria into its component parts. And we want to make sure that the protein is getting to the right place inside of the mitochondria, to the place inside of the mitochondria where the energy is being made, where the electron transport chain and the ATPase complexes live. So those are the biochemical steps that we look for to see if the protein is going to the right place. After that, we move to functional studies. So if we have the cell line from a patient that had a mutation in, in their mitochondrial DNA, then they're probably deficient in mitochondrial function. So we can measure whether they are making energy, whether they're consuming oxygen, whether they can survive under certain growth conditions. And so then those are the functional tests that we'll do at the end if they've passed all the previous tests. So that's, uh, that's kind of our, um, our assay flow for every time we make a new version of mitochondrial gene. You know, we start with, with step one, looking at the RNA and the proteins, and then keep going. And, you know, as soon as it fails, we got to go back to, to square one. But as, if they keep passing the test, then we'll go all the way through to the, uh, the functional test. And then we have a success and something that we can, uh, that we can publish. If I were to go in your lab, like how long would it take a person to learn how to do that effectively? It depends on the person, <laughs> so, yeah. and it depends on the background that, that they have in terms of their education. Uh, the best example I can give for that is our, um, our summer internship program, which is uh, our um, uh, SENS educational program. I encourage your listeners to look it up because it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing uh, program that we, we use to bring in super elite undergraduate students uh, from around the world into uh, our lab and our extramural lab partners in, in academia. And we place uh, 10 to 20 students a year in, in our lab, in the projects in our lab, or in, in other labs. And we you know take those students. And so they, they have a biology background. They're typically approximately a, a junior or a senior in, uh, in college. And they've been studying biology or chemistry, but they come into our lab and generally they've, they've never done any research on, say, mitochondria before. And so they have three months to get up to speed and learn a whole lot about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And, and then at the end, they need to produce a, a poster or give a public lecture about what they've accomplished that summer and our our students can go from 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 zero to to having a very high level of of expertise in our projects and in this case uh, you know mitochondrial gene therapy in uh, in only 3 months these are very gifted students 
we accept around two, two and a half percent of applicants to the program. And so it's, they're, 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 they're quite exceptional before, before they get here, but they're, they're able to, to learn enough to, to be quite competent in, in our lab in, in just a few months. So as long as you're smart, you can do it pretty quickly with the right uh, support. Uh, for some reason, I was thinking years, but maybe that's for like a- average people. So, but um, well, we- I mean, you know, for the leaders of the lab, like uh, like me and Amuta Buminathan, who's my, my my partner in leading the Mitosense research, certainly we spent, you know, we did four years of college, and then you know, you know, did you know five six years in a PhD, and then you know two to five years in a postdoc before we got here. So I'm not saying that, you know, the students get to our level in three months, hmm. but uh, they, they, they learn enough to be, um, almost all of our students make really strong contributions and, and you know, end up on our papers and such because they're, they're contributing data to the, to the work. So I, I was curious about Alloptic, if I'm pronouncing that right, expression. Allotopic, uh, we usually say. Allotopic, <laughs> thank you. Allotopic expression. What what is controversial about that other than that it's kind of new and it was it was talked about in your research paper a little bit but I'm just curious like what why was that labeled as a controversial thing when it just seems like maybe like an unexplored thing It has an interesting history it it is very underexplored but it actually goes back 30 years ago it was it was first um proposed that uh, that this could be done and there were some early experiments, uh, mostly in yeast, to see if it was possible. Over the years, various labs have tried it, and most uh, have failed at, at being able to accomplish much of significance. And in some cases, some of the things that have been published, other labs have had a hard time replicating. So that's one reason why it's controversial, is because one of the bedrocks, one of the foundations of science is that it has to be repeatable. If I do something in my lab and clearly lay out how it's done in a, in a publication and communicate that with you and you take it to your lab and you do exactly what I did and you can't repeat it, then that puts a, a big question uh, out there to other, to other scientists in the field about whether or not it's, it was a true result, whether or not the results that I saw in my lab actually happened the way that I claimed that they're happening. Uh, so that's one reason it's controversial. The other reason that is controversial is for theoretical reasons. So the, the evolution of mitochondria is basically a billion-year story. Most of the mitochondrial genome has migrated to the nucleus. So 99% of the genes that regulate your mitochondria live in your nuclear DNA that you inherited half from your mother and half from your father. But the other you know, roughly 1%, just 13 protein coding genes live in your mitochondria. Why in a billion years hasn't biology figured out a way to transfer those to the nucleus? It's a bit of a, of, of a lengthy debate, but is it, has it not happened because it's too difficult? And if it's too difficult for evolution to accomplish in a billion years, is it too difficult for me to accomplish in my lab in just a few short years? That, that's one criticism. And the other possibility is that actually evolution could have done it if it wanted to, but for some reason, there's a selective advantage for natural selection to keep genes in the mitochondrial DNA, in which case it's not necessarily very difficult to move genes to the nucleus. So that's why it's controversial is because 
is it really possible to to do this effectively? You know, can I actually put genes into a human cell and effectively transfer them from the mitochondria to the nucleus. We've done it in our publication for, for two genes. It worked better for one of those genes than for the other one. We're hoping to get it working for more genes and eventually all 13 soon. Uh, I hope to, you know, that we'll be publishing something on more of those genes. We'll be seeing something on that in the next six months or so. So stay tuned for that. But that, that's why it's controversial is because uh, it has a mixed history of, uh, of people having a hard time making it work. And there's potentially good evolutionary reasons why it's going to be a hard task and why we've, you know, been slaving away at, you know, carefully engineering these genes for so many years. From that, would mitochondria that got moved to the nucleus, would it be more defended? There's maybe like a very bad way of describing it, but would it be less prone to mutations that are negative if it was moved into there? Because less things could hit it because i think the nucleus is like kind of like a little bunker in my head like that's kind of how i think of it so would the moving it there make it safer i suppose i think you're thinking about this the right way and the nucleus its job is to house dna that's what it's specialized for that's 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 what it does that that's what it's evolved to do it has a great system for doing that like you said it's kind of like a bunker it has a membrane around it to protect it from you know, things getting in there and damaging your DNA. If something does get in to damage your DNA or, you know, things damage to your DNA spontaneously happens, happens all the time. We have an exquisitely complicated DNA repair machinery that fixes mutations in, in nuclear DNA. The mitochondria, on the other hand, is specialized for making energy. It's like a coal-fired power plant. It takes energy from your food, the, the sugars, the, the fats, the proteins, they get converted into, into molecules that the, that the mitochondria can, can handle and convert into, into ATP. That process is, is not uh, totally unlike a, a power plant, like a coal-fired power plant, because not only do you get great, useful ATP energy out, you also get something, a dangerous byproduct called free radicals. Free radicals can damage other molecules, and DNA is particularly susceptible to free radical damage. So it's kind of like putting a children's playground next to a, a coal-fired power plant. You know, you've got DNA in the mitochondria living right next to where you're producing a bunch of free radical. If if you had an engineer, you know, an intelligent, you know, a designer, they would not they would not have put it together that way. They would have put the DNA someplace safer, which is where we keep the vast, vast majority of all our DNA in the nucleus. So you're right. It, it is safer in the, in the nucleus. And that's why we think that in aging, we need to tackle the problem of mitochondrial mutations and that it's a much more serious problem than nuclear DNA mutations. So to, to some extent, the research you're doing is to kind of repair or improve it so there's a good balance so that things aren't being destroyed. I'm also curious... Is there a way to like supercharge things? Like, could things be made better? Like, it, like I guess moving it in there and making it more safe, like a bunker. I'm curious. Like, are there any like fringe benefits people would have by ha like that we could do to the mitochondria if that makes sense? Okay, so the question is, can we supercharge mitochondria and make them better than they are now? And the answer is probably yes. And I think that there's a, an interesting future there. So one way of answering that question is to say, what do we have now? Do some people already have, you know, mitochondria that are better 
at certain things than, than other people? And the answer there is probably yes. It looks like there are people that have higher densities that have more mitochondria in their muscles and that that might confer greater endurance, athletic endurance. And, you know, another, you know, way it, to, to look at it is, you know, can we boost the mitochondria in some way? Can, can we juice it either short term or, or long term? And the answer is, I think we're in, to, in for an interesting future. I, I, I think that, you know, the next generation of, of doping uh, could be mitochondrial doping. It, it could absolutely happen. And I think that, you know, that we'll be hearing about that in the next decade or so. There are drugs being developed now for mitochondrial disease that boost mitochondrial function. And I saw a, a really interesting lecture about this at, at a conference and, and some interesting papers that have been published coming out of it. So in, in one of these papers, they took rodents that were old and rodents that were young. And the young rodents are stronger than the old rodents, right? So you have a very old rodent and, and it, it, it can't flex its muscles as strongly as the young one. So you give it this mitochondrial boosting drug and temporarily it can flex its muscles uh, and generate much more force out of its muscles. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the story. What happens if you give the same drug to a young mouse? It also gets stronger. <laughs> so, so yes, if you just boost mitochondrial function, you, you might get improvements in, 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 um, in, in the output, uh, in physical parameters, in endurance or, uh, or short-term strength. You know, what are, what are the long-term health consequences of that? Who knows? Uh, it, it, it will be an interesting question. And, you know, what will we see, you know, going forward from that? I'm not sure, but it, I, I think we'll, we'll see some, interest, some interesting things happen in that, in that realm in the coming years. I'm thinking like a guy actually like did some, like took some like CRISPR stuff and injected it in himself to make him have bigger muscles. So I don't know, people, I'll wait, let other people be the guinea pigs. But the, um... I, so I, I asked a bodybuilder who I know who I, I believe has experimented with performance enhancing drugs and, and knows a lot about the, the area. And he told me that as far as he knows, nobody is, is messing with their mitochondria yet, that they're not smart enough to, 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 to know to do that. But I imagine it will, uh, it will trickle down eventually. <laughs> well, maybe like a side business for you. <laughs> no, no, it will not be. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Then, um, so going on the opposite end, there is a disease called Lay's disease. How would your research change that prognosis? Like death over a course of a couple of years, so clearly hereditary. What would what would be the change? The the, the disease that you're asking me about, uh, Lay's syndrome, is 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 often an extremely severe disease. It affects the skeletal muscle, and it can affect cardiovascular muscle, and it can affect uh, neurological area. So it can it can have a really severe effect on patients who who, who are born with with mutations that cause that disease. It often it's been diagnosed at a very young age, two years old is is not uh, unusual. It can be extremely severe, and it can kill children at that age, four or five years old. If you're diagnosed that young, you know they they, they will often not survive to to see their, their fifth or their tenth birthday. One one challenge is the diagnosis. So diagnosis for mitochondrial disease takes an average of two years right now. It's a huge problem in the in the medical field. Is that you know going from symptoms of when a baby doesn't look like they're feeling well or my, my child's complaining about being tired all the time or something like that, going from that to you have this particular mutation in your mitochondrial DNA, right now that takes an average of two years. We've got to shorten that way down. Once we get our technology into gene therapy in the clinic, we hope 
to not only be able to halt the progression of the disease if we can deliver with the gene therapy to all the tissues that are being impacted, which is not a small challenge. Gene therapy is is limited by its access to each cell that it can get into. And getting into places like the muscle and the heart and the brain are the hardest places to get into with gene therapy. But if we can effectively get into those places with our, our therapy, we hope that it would not only stop the progression of the disease that will eventually potentially kill a patient much of the time, but that we would reverse some or all of the effects of that disease. And, and I think that our results in that, you know, we see cells that are, that are sick and then we bring them back to, to growing like normal cells, I, I think is encouraging that, uh, that, that we hope to be able to do that someday. And that was Dr. Matthew O'Connor of SENS. Remember to check out SENS.org, check out their internship program, follow along with all their developments. They are constantly putting out content and working on age-related issues. So if you're interested, passionate, and wanting to learn more about age-related issues, diseases, and what we're doing to combat them, I'd follow along with this organization because you're going to get a lot of that, a lot of those updates and a lot of that content that you want to hear about. So if you like this episode, please let me know because... If you let me know, I can do more age-related type content and interviews. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at LowellWasHere, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.